for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Well, in his, uh, here's a shifting gears. In his 2014 film, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Wes Anderson, one of my favorite directors, demonstrates how a single event can evolve from a lived experience to a reflected experience to a written experience to a shared experience. And the movie begins with a, a shot of this girl clutching a book and stare, standing in front of the statue of a deceased author that she loves. Followed by a flashback to the author as an old man, reflecting on events he'd experienced as a young man. Followed by a flashback of that same author as a young man, living the experiences that he would later reflect on and later write about and then share publicly, earning the love of readers like this girl standing in front of the statue, clutching the book of this author that she loves. And today in reading the scriptures, we're actually living out a similar experience. Here we are, uh, gathered around the foot of the cross gathered to read and meditate on the scriptures in which we flash back to Peter as an old man and and first Peter, reflecting in a letter on the meaning of things that he experienced as a younger man, flashing back to those formational experiences that he and the other disciples had as students of Jesus of Nazareth. The experiences that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John would write about in the Gospels, earning the love and the fealty of people like you and me who stand in front of the cross long after the deaths of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and after the resurrection of Jesus. In John's Gospel, it begins on the evening of Easter Sunday. And the disciples are gathered in an upper room behind a locked door. They're holed up. Three days earlier, they had seen the grotesque, violent, public execution of the one that they loved dearly. And some of you have had brushes with violence or brushes with evil, and you know it it shakes you to your core. And the disciples had, had so many hopes placed on Jesus, and His execution was so final, and it was so violent, and it was so humiliating for one who bore such intrinsic dignity. Not only were they processing the trauma of the cross, not only were they gutted by the void left by Jesus' absence, they were now preparing themselves for the very real likelihood that they would soon find themselves on similar crosses. And they would be humiliated before all who knew them. In an earlier story, if if you've listened in recent weeks, we've been kind of marching through the Gospel of John. Uh, Every time Jesus went to Jerusalem, they knew it was going to be consequential. And one of his nearly final visits to Jerusalem, the disciples are like, are you sure that you want to go? Do you really want to do this? And Thomas is like, let's just go and die with him and get over it. Thomas, in, in a similar way, is, is, is absent from the disciples on this gathering, though he catches up with them the following week. He was admitting what they all knew, that violence against them was a possibility, and now that they'd taken out Jesus, it was a probability. 
Jesus who had healed, Jesus who had taught, Jesus who had cast out demons was publicly executed by the state in cooperation with the religious leadership of Jerusalem. That Easter morning, they'd had the unsettling experience of hearing rumors that he'd been raised from the dead. The women are claiming that they've seen him, and Peter and John rush to the tomb. You know, Peter assumes that perhaps somebody has snatched his body away. John sees the old grave clothes folded and believes that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead. But they were mostly all together that night without Thomas, without Judas, but the ten were together when Jesus, with scarred hands and scarred feet, and had the wound in his side appeared to those disciples, and he said, Peace be with you. Now, a conversation for another time. The, the early church understood that Jesus' own resurrected body gave us a picture of the resurrected bodies that we all have. It was a very real resurrected body such that they could touch him. They ate with him. They shared meals with him. They watched him drink like he was a real guy. And also, he's like walking through walls. He has a transformed physical body. The church understood this is a picture of the kind of bodies we'll have in the age to come when the dead in Christ rise. And Jesus, the last person they expect, even though he called a shot and told them he would be raised from the dead, appears in their midst and says, peace be with you. Pope Leo the Great said, Jesus offers to the doubter's eyes the marks of the cross that remained in his hands and feet and invites them to handle him with careful scrutiny. The traces of the nails and spear had been retained to heal the wounds of unbelieving hearts, so that not with wavering faith, but with the most certain conviction they might comprehend that the nature that had lain in the tomb was to sit on God the Father's throne. These post-resurrection appearances by Jesus were integral to the faith of the disciples and the early church. They were vitally important, and they established the universal understanding that Jesus was not just raised to new life in the memory of those who loved him. Jesus was not mostly dead and then resuscitated. They were not hallucinating. They were not on some kind of shroom together and had a trippy experience. This was not a ghost sighting, that Jesus was, as a matter of fact, raised from the dead. And it was his post-resurrection appearances that carried so much weight for the early church. John, writing his first epistle, begins in this way. He says, that which, we have, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John is saying to these believers, the stuff that I'm talking about, I touched Him. It was real. I heard Him. I was in His presence. Paul, similarly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of the most important chapters on resurrection in the New Testament, talks about the importance of the appearance of Jesus after his resurrection, not to a small number of people. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. He says, What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then what happened after that? And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. I think this sentence is pretty important. He appeared to 500 people at the same time. The disciples were not making this up and then trying to convince the 500. There were 500 who saw him at the same time. And most of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. The Bible way of saying dead. Then he appeared to James, and then he appeared to all the apostles. And Paul says, and lastly, he appeared to me. The, church, the church's belief in the resurrection of Jesus was established on eyewitness testimony, on the objective reality that people actually saw him. And if you want to hear a compelling argument for why the resurrection of Jesus is actually the most sensible explanation for what happened, uh, you might read N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope. Read it anyway. It, you're going to get like 30 pages in and be like, this is hard. Persevere and then it'll be fireworks at the end and then we can have coffee and talk about it. But he talks about in, the, in, the, in the, the early centuries, there was a somewhat uniform understanding of what resurrection was, who resurrection would happen to, how people talked about resurrection, and then all of a sudden, in seven major ways, there was a mutation in all the ways that people were talking about it. And he establishes this really effectively. He asks the question, what is the likeliest explanation for how a large group of people who like to argue about things would shift to a very like, universal understanding of the resurrection? Well, it just may be the case that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. It's the most sensible explanation. You can go read that for yourself. Well, a week passes. We find ourselves on the Sunday after Easter. Thomas is now with the disciples, reunited, gathered again in the upper room. I wish I knew what Jesus had been doing that week. He appeared to them on Easter Sunday in the evening behind the closed door, and then he appeared again. I, I don't know what you do after you're raised from the dead. What's the, like, first century equivalent of, I'm going to Disney World. I don't, I don't know what Jesus did. But I bet he had a good time. The disciples are gathered in that upper room, and Jesus again appears to them, and Thomas had been reluctant to accept that it was true. The eyewitness account of these others had not been enough for him, and he said, unless I get to touch him, unless I get to see him, unless I get to hear his voice, I will not believe. And Jesus returns, and he's in the presence of Thomas, and Thomas sees him, and he touches him, and he hears him, and he exclaims, my Lord and my God. Thomas in that moment is saying the very words of adoration and worship that are sung around the throne by the four living creatures and the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 5 exclaiming our Lord and our God. And Jesus says something that I think maybe hurt Thomas's feelings, but it's like in this moment he breaks the fourth wall and he speaks to those of us who are going to read this account later. Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In the age to come, I like to think that one of us at the great marriage supper of the Lamb is going to get lucky enough to sit near a disciple. I hope it, I hope it happens. And we're going to be with Thomas or with Philip or Bartholomew or James or John and be like, you were there, what was it like? 
And what have you been doing the last 2,000 years? What's that been like? And we'll be amazed to be in their presence feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But I, I have to think that the disciples are going to be equally amazed to be in our presence. Thomas will be like, you didn't even get to touch him. You didn't even get to hear his voice, and yet you love him just like we love him. Gosh, this is so cool. A church father in the 6th century named Ecumenius said, if you love him now, when you've not seen him but you've only heard about him, think how much you will love him when you finally do see him and when he appears in his glory. For if his suffering and death have drawn you to him, how much more will you be attracted by his incredible splendor when he will grant you the salvation of your souls as your reward? Already in the generation that followed the disciples, they were amazed that people were coming to believe. The story of Jesus started in, in Jerusalem as the epicenter of it, but it, it went out. Paul, uh, Jesus said this would happen. You'll receive power when the Spirit comes on you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And it's going to the ends of the earth as far as they know it all throughout the Roman world. And Peter is writing to believers who weren't there when it happened and just amazed. I, I just love that you love the one that I loved. He says in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Jesus, uh, Peter had had this experience with Jesus. He lived it. He'd reflected on it. And now he was communicating to these believers, here's what it means. He says in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, we now live in a world where someone claimed they would be raised from the dead and then they were actually raised from the dead. Don't you see that this changes everything? And for all of us who trust in Him, it's like we have been born a second time into this durable, resilient, living hope because if it happened for him, maybe it could happen for us if we trust in him. He says that we've been given this resilient hope, a hope that death can't kill. He says that as a result of being born again into God's family, we have been made beneficiaries in God's will. He continues, he says, you've been born into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Now, I said last week that the end of the Christian story is not about us flying away from planet Earth to some other esoteric, ethereal place called heaven, but it's about heaven and earth coming together. And so we read in this passage that our inheritance is being kept in heaven for you. It's kind of like how Emily and I secretly hide ice cream in the fridge. And it's hiding behind several versions of frozen vegetables. And we know if we can endure until the end of the day when the kids are asleep, there is ice cream being kept in the freezer for us. And this is the very sense in which, it's, in which Peter is saying this. There is an inheritance that is being kept for you in heaven. And when heaven and earth are brought together, it will come to bear in your life and you will come into your inheritance. To a church that's enduring suffering and persecution, 
facing some of the social costs of being Christian. Some of them have been kicked out of their trade guilds as a result of their baptism into the church. It matters to them who've been disenfranchised that they've been given a great inheritance in the kingdom of God. And to this church that's enduring the challenge of both believing without seeing and social hostility, Peter continues. He says, in view of all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor on that day when Jesus Christ is revealed. The church understood. It was in the Old Testament. They talked about the, day, the great day of the Lord. The believers in the New Testament understood that there would come a day in history when everything would change. As they were standing there watching Jesus ascend to the right hand of the Father, He disappeared from their eyes, and suddenly two angels are there and present with them saying, Why are you looking up into the heavens? This same Jesus who has gone from you will return just as He came. There's a promise, a hope, that on a day, great day, the great day of the Lord, our faith would be made sight and Jesus Himself would return. What did they understand would happen on that great day? Well, for starters, we will receive our inheritance. I have to think that God is, is even more creative than we can imagine. You've heard stories of cool stories of how parents expertly planned the inheritance that they were going to give their children such that it was a true blessing and not a burden to them. How much more is the, is the inheritance that we will come into in the age to come when heaven and earth are brought together? I don't fully know what it means, but on that day, we will come into our inheritance. One of the central promises of Scripture that Christians inadequately understand is on that day, we will receive back the dead in Christ. My friend J.D. years ago um, took a video of his sons doing something you probably shouldn't do, which was skateboarding through a cemetery. They did it on an Easter Sunday morning, and his boys, J.D.'s boys, were preaching the gospel to these headstones and the bodies that were underneath them. Williams, hear the good news, Christ is raised from the dead. Jones, hear the good news, Christ is raised from the dead. The scriptures promise us unambiguously that when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise. My sweet grandma, Marie Smith, is with the Lord, and we, when we talk to our children about Grandma Marie, we'll say, right now, Grandma Marie is in heaven, and she's waiting for her resurrection body. She's waiting for her new body. Uh, <laughs> well, too many details, but <laughs> I was thinking about, um, in the fall of 19, Many of you have experienced this. Our experience is not uncommon, but in, in the fall of 19, we lost a baby at 15 weeks. You know, talking, about our talking with our children about Philip Robert, we'll say, well, he's, in, he's with Jesus, and he's waiting for his resurrection body. And many of us have lost people that we love, that we want to hold, we want to touch them again, we want to hear their voice again. Christian hope 
is the resurrection of the dead. Thank God, what redemption. <laughs> These decaying bodies, this is not the end. The dead in Christ will rise. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4. Look at Romans 6 through 8. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, listen to the words of Jesus. The days are now coming and have now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What's going to happen on that day? The dead in Christ will rise. I feel confident that on that day when part of coming into our inheritance is simply seeing the one that we loved, the one that we so tried to believe in and trust all these days. There are days you wake up and you're like, let's try to believe it all again. And someday we'll see the one that our hearts desire. And on that day, the guessing is over and the waiting will be over. That will be part of our inheritance of what happens on that day. On that day, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and all of our secrets will be revealed. At this, the earth will breathe both a sigh of relief and dread. But there will be no more hiding and there will be no more pretense. We'll find that person who was of no consequence in our earth in the present age turned out to be one of the greatest like saints of all and will be seated in honor at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we'll find out that people, you know, like me who received earthly honor standing in front of people under lights with microphones on their faces turned out to be kind of like hollow trees. And they have received about as, you know, big a reward on earth as they're going to get. The first will be last, and the last will turn out to be first. We'll stand before the judgment seat. The hearts of all will be revealed, and there will be no more secrets and no more hiding. In the age to come, on that day when Christ returns... The deep groanings of our heart for justice, for true equity, will finally find their relief when God himself will be among us as our judge and he'll judge between the people with faithfulness. Psalm 96. He'll judge between the people with faithfulness. Isaiah foresaw a day when the weapons of war and the art of war would be unlearned and our weapons would be unmade. The only purpose they have is to turn into gardening tools. There will be a day when there need be no more lawyers, no more judges. There will be one judge who rules the earth with faithfulness. I look forward to that day. On that day, the earth itself will be renewed. The glory that was intrinsic to creation before the fall will be restored. Revelation 22 gives us a picture of the tree of life being on either side of a river that flows from the throne of God, and the leaves of the tree will be for the healing of the nations. What will happen on that day? We will feast at the great marriage supper of the Lamb, and we are going to have a grand old time joining in the worship around the throne. Waterdeep has this song, nine of you remember Waterdeep, where uh, Don and Lori Chaffer sing, I hope we sit together when Jesus serves the wine, so I can look into your eyes when I taste it that first time. Because I know there's no secrets when you're sitting around that table, but I believe we'll smile real knowingly when we read the label. And it says, passion, sacrificed to keep from going crazy. We'll tip our glasses to the host who used to look so hazy and drink it down all sweet and slow and slip inside his mind and realize as it goes down, 
This is communion wine. We'll feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. For the church, for the last 2,000 years, there has been one singular event, one thing that has assured us that we're not crazy to hope for these things, and it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Established on eyewitness testimony by the people who saw Him, who heard Him, who touched Him. And then with the coming of the Spirit, the presence of Jesus Christ has been made alive in the church. And it's on the objective basis of His resurrection from the dead. You tend to trust people who call their shots and Jesus said, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be crucified, but on the third day I'll be raised. And then it happened. I'm going to believe anything else that He says. He says, I'm coming back. And there will be a great day to come. What do we, what do, we do with all of this? One, I think that it's wise for us to meditate on the truth of the resurrection and meditate on the truth of what that means. Take the reality of the resurrection and the promises of Jesus to their logical conclusion. Tease out the implications and think, what does it mean that we live in a world in which one person was raised from the dead as they promised? If he was raised from the dead, and I believe that, and he said other stuff, well, what would it look like for me to live as if everything he said was the, was the doggone truth? What do we do with it? Well, we meditate on it. When facing feelings of scarcity or, or not enough or we're worried about whether we're measuring up with other people, say, Lord, I trust that you are storing up good things for me, so I'm not going to worry too much about keeping up with the Joneses in the present age. I've got an inheritance that I'm coming into. When we're gripped by grief over tragedy, and there's, this, there's a sense within us, and we just know this is wrong, and you can't convince me otherwise. We're right to grieve, and we say, Lord, I believe that you are going to make this right. You will not tolerate this kind of wrong forever. When we're saddened by injustice, and we see the suffering of the innocent and the vulnerable like our, our nation has seen in recent weeks, we trust God. I trust that the one who sits on the throne will execute True justice on the earth, and even this you will make right. When we're struggling with those questions that we just can't answer, we say, Lord, I believe that I will see you, and when I see you, it will make sense, because it does not right now. When we're worried about the earth itself, when we're worried about the future of our planet, So, Lord, I trust that you are going to heal the earth that you made and you love. When, when as from time to time, or sometimes for some of us for chronic seasons, we feel lonely and we feel disconnected and we don't know where we belong, we can say to the Lord, Lord, I believe that I will find my true place of belonging when I feast at the heavenly banquet. When you wake up in the morning and sometimes you're like, Man, it's just hard to believe today. And you're wondering if it's all true. And you say, well, I trust that the message of the gospel wouldn't have gotten to me if there weren't something to it. I trust that the first Christians didn't believe for nothing because people don't do that. And so I trust that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. I don't have to go back beyond that point. And for each of us, when we all have to consider the reality of our own death, Unless Christ returns before we die, each of us are going to die. And when considering our own death, we can say, well, I've already died with Christ, and I believe that He will raise me in His bag of bones from the dead. 
we can meditate on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I think the other thing that we can do is we can, taking this to the logical conclusion, derive our ethics from our hopes. We derive our ethics, how we are navigating our world from the things that we believe and the hopes that we're holding on to being made reality in the age to come. Peter said this at the end of chapter 1, ethics and hopes. He said, therefore, in view of the inheritance we'll come into based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hopes on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. In view of your hopes, shape your ethics, how you engage in the world. How can our ethics guide our hopes? We can say, Lord, help me to live as one who will not be ashamed when all of my secrets are revealed. I have a hope that in the age to come, before the judgment seat of Christ, all of our secrets will go away. It's a hope of mine. How can it guide my thinking? Lord, help me to live as one who need not be ashamed when my secrets are revealed. When going through seasons of difficulty or persecution, how can my hopes uh, guide my ethics? Lord, help me to endure difficulty so that my faith may be refined, so that I have something to show on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed. James said it, that I may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. When thinking about stewarding all of the resources that have been entrusted to us, how can my hopes be derived? How can my hopes drive my ethics? Lord, help me not to hoard resources, but to trust that you are my inheritance and my portion, and I have more than enough. Lord, help me to live in the light and to put away deeds of darkness and the futile thinking of darkness. How can even our grief and our lament be guided by our hopes? Lord, help me to grieve and to mourn in the light of your resurrection and the renewal and the resurrection of the dead that is to come. And then finally, thinking about our friends like Luke and Abby, or thinking of all of the ways in which you and I are invited to exercise bravery as followers of Jesus. How can our hopes guide our ethics? Lord, help me to live courageously, knowing that for me, the worst anyone can do to me is to kill me, but I've already been crucified with Christ, and I will be raised with Christ in the age to come. So there's nothing they can do to me. Therefore, I will live without fear. I will live courageously. I will live gently and lightly and calmly because Christ has died. Christ has risen and Christ will come again. And it's on the objective basis of His resurrection from the dead that we hold on to the sure and precious hope of those things that will be made reality on that day when Christ returns in glory and we see Him who our hearts desire. As we hear the Scriptures and as we prepare to come to the table, it always invites this breathing in, breathing out response of us of, to repent to be, be sober-minded but without shame and naming those ways in which our thinking and our behavior is off track, in which our ethics are not being guided by our hopes or where our hopes have been placed in the wrong things. And today as you prepare to receive communion, I encourage and challenge you to repent, 
to ask the Lord Jesus to point out those ways in which you're trusting in alternate plans, ways in which your ethics are not being guided by your hopes or your hopes are misplaced. I think there's also, friends, today in a world that's so discouraging and disheartening as ours, uh, the invitation we always need to place our faith again in Jesus who, who has been faithful in the past and is faithful now and will be faithful forever. To articulate to the Lord, Lord, as difficult as it can be for me, having never seen you myself, having never touched you like Thomas did and never having heard your audible voice, today again, Lord Jesus, I place my faith and my trust in you put my hope in you that you will make things right, even me. Let's pray together. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.